You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. And welcome back to another episode of Saturday Morning Live, right here on the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Mudabir Khalid, and my co-presenters today are Shams Najam, Usman Bhatt, and we have a newbie with us today, Sajil Shah. So, um, how are we doing? Assalamu alaikum. Yeah, good, thank you. Sajil, it's your first time today on radio. How are you feeling about it? Um, I'm feeling good. I think it'll be an interesting experience um, being with Murabi Saab as yeah. well. So we'll get some good insight into lots of these topics. No, so inshallah. Um, God willing, Sajil can provide um, some insightful commentary. Is that why you bought the donuts? Is because it was for a show? Actually, no. But uh, it's coincidental because we know Sajil loves donuts. But no, I, I really gave my reasons for why I had donuts. We had donuts just before the show, but that wasn't why. But I think it works out anyway. Um so, as always, we are uh, a live show and we want to keep it interactive as well. So please do get involved. If you have any thoughts, any comments uh, on the topic today or anything that we mentioned, please do give us a call on 0208-687-7878. Or you could tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. <coughs> so, as always, in the first hour, we're going to be talking about some headline stories or what's been happening uh, the last week or so. And in the second hour, we're going to be talking about issues that you face in today's society and <coughs> whether we can be moral in a seemingly an immoral society. So that's something I want to discuss. And we're all parents here, so we, we can talk about how we, how we feel we will tackle these issues with our children. So that should be an interesting conversation. And any parent or any uh, individual that wants to get involved in the discussion, please do give us a call uh, or tweet us um, and hopefully we can um, share your comments but to get things started I did say I had a conversation there was a question I remember um, I said I wanted to ask you guys to get the conversation started let's, so not, let's not be a difficult question we're going to go to a break <laughs> real quick <laughs> it won't be difficult hopefully it won't be difficult so what I was thinking was we're in December already which is yeah. crazy we think about how quick the year has flown by right mm. and there's an exercise that we used to have when um, when I was volunteering Abroad, there was a, uh, every so often we'd have this exercise where we sit down, and it was called pits and peaks. So we would mm. talk about what the pits and peaks have been of the day or of the week. So pits and peaks. Say that again. Pits and peaks. So okay. pits basically being like the lowest, lowest, yeah, yeah. and peaks, peaks right, being right. okay. What's been the highest like point of the year that's gone by? Of the year. So we can mm. just quickly just go around the table. I'll start to give you guys time to think if you need oh, time because you've had time to think because <laughs> yeah, 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 you know what the answer is for you I mean right, it could be it could be a personal thing it could be a societal thing it could be something mm. that being a, a peak or a pit in like the public sphere yeah. so for me <clears throat> my peak would be watching my son develop seeing him seeing him grow seeing him like walking like learning new words interacting starting to develop and that for me has been a highlight obviously it's an ongoing thing but it's mm. been a, a real highlight for me and the pit uh, sorry the pit would be the atrocities that we've been seeing around the world um, the heartbreaking scenes that we've been seeing um, that for me has been like very just uh, yeah it's, 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 it's saddening basically so there my two that's what my, my peak was seeing uh, has been and will continue to be God willing. Thank you for seen. picking the two everyone <laughs> else probably would have picked. <laughs> I'm ga- um, you, to be fair, but yeah, you, you shall see next. So we'll go to Shams <laughs> Let's next. go around in it. Yeah, go on, Shams. Um, it's a difficult one. Um, again, I, you know, I think a peak for me, again, probably similar to everyone else's. 
um, kids, yeah, watching the kids sort of grow. Um, my son started reception, so compulsory education this year. So I think that for me, like it's nice seeing that, nice seeing him sort of develop, um, you know, and go, go full time. And th I think I've said this before as well, <coughs> Like the speed at which they develop once they start education mm. full time is just, yeah, it's phenomenal to see because, um, you know, they literally within the first few weeks, they're talking a lot more, um, vocabulary is increased, you, their understanding of things has increased and it's really sort of, but also you then begin to see <coughs> that different sides of their personality as well. Like, you know, they're completely knackered when they finish school, so they're coming home and they're um, a lot of the time they're moody like he's moody but you just see you know that level of development which is nice to see because obviously we went through it so it's come something you know you can, you can you, you, I relate back to sort of the times when I was sort of in year one two and this, this I remember them some memories yeah <laughs> I do um, and um, yeah that, that I suppose is a peak uh, I mean as is always right I think for everyone like family is going to be like the peak but um yeah, and, and, so and, and pits. Oh, Life's just been that great to you. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying not to say the same thing you said, but I guess it's the same, isn't it? It's the atrocities that we see um, happening today. Um, but I think, I think, uh, uh, you know, generally in society, and we're probably going to discuss this in the second hour. Um, yeah, is uh, is the way we're developing. I think as a society, like it just it always seems doom and gloom. Uh, things always seem to be going wrong, and we see that with, you know, and I'll mention it in a bit. You know, the autumn budget, the stuff that we went mm. through, productivity. It just feels like there's a lot in terms of from a societal perspective that seem to be going wrong, and then you add in, um, you know, the things that are happening in. Um, Gaza at the moment and um, yeah it just feels like there's a lot there's a lot that's going wrong so I suppose generally yeah that would be you know the pit that sounds very bleak <laughs> it's I guess I know your favourite your favourite child is you only mentioned one child you've got three kids <laughs> you uh, only mentioned yeah. one child there's no hesitation I'll admit that's your favourite child <laughs> he, 100% I, I tell this to my wife she doesn't like it I'm like of course he's the favourite he has to be he's the first no I'm joking no. but um, I think <clears throat> because he's the oldest I'm seeing him develop and I'm at a stage where I can actually have a conversation with him now um, you know like and in fact I'll share this here what we were talking about earlier like he's uh, he's having sort of a period in, in school where they're preparing for Christmas and um, the you know the festive season is here and obviously being Muslim like we have to be mindful of what level of involvement we allow our children to do. So it's a kind of like a follow-on point for what mm. you said. But because he is now older, I can have these conversations with him to some degree. I mean... Um, so he's only five years old. How is he? Four. 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 Um, the listeners might be thinking, wow, this kid is like 18, 19. No, <laughs> he's yeah, having some yeah. deep conversations yeah. with his son. But <laughs> he's only so, four years old. So he, um, he had a Christmas jumper day. Mm. And... Um, you know, we didn't send him in a Christmas jumper because obviously they, they said, look, you've got a choice. You can send him in his normal uniform if you like. And he went in his no normal uniform. And so he's come home and then he's asked, like, you know, everyone else was in there, you know, Christmas jumper. Why wasn't I in the Christmas jumper? So then it's just like, now I'm getting to that stage and I can start having these conversations with him. Like, and, you know, at the moment, so I'm, I'm obviously explaining to him, look, we don't necessarily um, celebrate Christmas like that. But it's difficult because for a child that age, 
they just think you're taking them away from something that's fun. They don't recognize or understand the implications um, of avoiding sort of getting involved in those things. Um, but yeah, and it's a difficult one for me because whilst I can maybe stop him from wearing, wearing a Christmas jumper, I can't I can't stop him on, in his day-to-day activities of where they're probably decorating a Christmas tree or where they're doing all... So it makes my job even harder because then he's like, mm. why, am I, why am I doing some things? And then when it comes to my dad, he's just completely stopping me. But I ain't in, So it's, um, it's a difficult but interesting period. But I think, you know, parents have to go through it. And this is why I sort of asked you guys offline, like, what would you do? Because... For me, it's like, you know, I follow a religion, I follow a set of rules, and I want my children to follow those set of rules. And for me, it doesn't matter whether that's, you know, upsets him to a certain degree yeah. or offends him to a certain degree. As long as it's not offensive to another religion, he needs to understand from my perspective or our perspective, the religion that we believe in and the, the guidance that we follow. But that brings with it difficulties of course mm. it does um, mm. because they feel left yeah. out <clears throat> i think that's a very interesting point and predicament as well mm. if it, if you see it as a predicament um but i think we can have a lot to say about it in the second hour yeah yeah let's say it for the second hour but all right let me move to, uh, just before we move on i remember what year what year is your son reception i went to a um primary school i got invited to a primary school just to introduce the kids to islam and this was in like a when I was serving in Stevenage, but it was a bit further towards Milton Keynes, so it was like an area where there was very few like Asian people. It was predominantly white people. So I went to the school, and before it was a year three class, <coughs> the whole year, and um, they took me into the staff room first, just as like caution, so look, as a warning, these kids, you're probably like the first Asian guy these kids are seeing. They're kids, they're going to ask innocent questions. Like, yeah, don't worry, I said, I won't be offended. They can ask whatever. They gave you a debrief before the. Yeah, they gave me a debrief. <laughs> <laughs> I was, we went in, and then, like, you know, like, it was, they took a huge, kid took a huge, like, deep breath, of, like, it was a gasp when I heard when I walked in the. <gasps> and I was like, oh, okay, these kids, seriously, like, in the UK, they've never seen anyone like me. Or, and I was wearing the full kind of shirakamis, which is traditional Pakistani kind of long shirt and uh, open trousers. Um, and then I introduced Islam for about two minutes I was like okay if anyone's got any questions every kid raised their hand and the first kid asked me and the, the way it was set up I was standing in front of them and the teachers were behind the kids the first question was um, what planet are you from? <laughs> like, and they were dead serious like they weren't joking like you know you could tell if someone was being silly they were like no no what planet are you from? I was like oh I'm from the planet Earth they like oh is it? okay what food do you eat? next question what food do you eat? I was like, oh, that's a really good question because, yeah, we eat the same food as you, just certain things that we can't eat and drink. Mm. Oh, okay. Third question was, do you celebrate Christmas? Mm. <laughs> uh, sometimes when you answer these questions, they're so like, it's like a ready-made answer, I know what I'm going to say. Yeah. So I started saying, yeah, look, we don't celebrate in the way that you do, but we obviously enjoy the festive, festive period, yeah. period, time off, family get together, I love eggnog latte, like the whole life, <laughs> whatever I say, yeah. <laughs> But I said, yeah, obviously, because like for us, like for, like this whole like Christmas thing, it's not real. Like Father Christmas is not real. I said it like that. And as soon as I said it, the teachers just started waving as if like it's like fire had gone off. Like, oh, please, uh, cut it, cut it, do something else. I was like, delete it. And, then, yeah, and I was a bit confused. And then the teacher said, no, um, you know these children, like, yeah, they they they're gonna celebrate Christmas. And I was like, oh, straight away I knew. I was like, okay, I don't wanna confuse them. <laughs> but I realized then that. Even now, I feel with parents, that like my nephew, so you, when he goes to school with your your son, his mom was telling me, he goes, um, 
obviously we've explained to him that Father Christism is not real and we don't do these things and what he did was then go and tell his friends and then now his friends his parents of his friends really upset and they came in like had a bit of a go and saying like you know like obviously we know he's not real but like you don't have to tell our kids because now our kids will know that it's not real and now you've ruined that bit I'm like, oh, sorry man I didn't know that that will happen I was just trying to explain to my kid but yeah that was an interesting story I remember when I ruined that year three classes Christmas sorry, sorry my pits and peaks on, uh, my on. peak probably be again um, the birth of my daughter uh, peak because like we were blessed after seven years of marriage we had our first child uh, the whole experience was extremely spiritual um, it made me realise that more so than ever uh, the existence of God and because the way it happened for us like everything had to be right for it to happen and then when you go through that whole labour process even then you appreciate women your mothers um, your wife a lot more because that process is not easy mm. um, so that yeah and then again like I said she's four months old now so the whole development of her and seeing her grow that's definitely a a peak I would say from a different angle the pits for me would be obviously what's happening but it's a particular incident like we obviously across the UK across the world actually we're holding these Voices for Peace programs mm-hmm and one thing that I just couldn't get out of my mind when I witnessed it, it was like, we're holding an event here in, in Morden, in this mosque, actually. And I think close to 2,000 people attended, in which we were campaigning for peace, like mm-hmm. trying to get people to push for a ceasefire. And uh, obviously, it's a very emotional event. When you attend these events and you see the images, hear people's stories, you know, like, and you see, ch- like, when you see children comforting other children, that it's okay, your parents have gone to heaven. Or, you know, one kid saying to the other kid, look, before you die, make sure you read the testimony, you know, that there's none worthy of worship except Allah and the Holy Prophet is message. That's so, like, sad. Like, mm-hmm. it just breaks your heart. I think any time you see kids suffer, mm-hmm. it brings that kind of the world to a stop mm-hmm. to see, look, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So that particular event, obviously emotions were higher. As soon as I left the event, I think it was bonfire night. Mm-hmm. And I saw like a massive queue. You know the park opposite Morden? Yeah, Morden Park. There was a massive queue just all the way down to the shops. And I was thinking, it hit me then, and this is why I'd say one of my pits work is that human suffering, it has an immediate effect on someone. So that when you see what's happening, it will have an immediate effect on you. But then when it continues to happen, you just it becomes normal for you mm. like you just continue doing what you're doing can't be sensitized to and uh, like that for me hit me was like, oh, like here people are dying like since then that's been my mentality like people are dying and you're doing this or people are dying and we're doing this so it took me some time to get over that kind of mentality mm. um, and I think his holiness says it best in terms of like our biggest tool is to pray for these people like we <coughs> have to wholeheartedly pray for these people because if not if we just think it's not our problem it really like it's so inhumane and insensitive Mm -hmm. and that was the first time when I saw that line I saw people just I mean obviously we're not saying everyone be miserable Mm. but that's the first time it hit me that actually wow if it if the problem doesn't affect you directly it's not a problem Mm. Um, and you're okay just kind of and uh, I think with the marches I feel that what what these marches have done is it's educated the average guy who might not know what's actually happening but he mm-hmm. sees like thousand people outside on the road and he's realised okay something's happening mm-hmm. some part of the world 
So that I would say probably from that angle was my pick. Thank you for that, Zafra. Yeah, I'd say like I think you guys have covered the main big topics. So more on like a personal note. Um, so like I also Alhamdulillah was blessed with uh, my first children. Um, so what happened with me was I had a, quite a long process eventually finding a rishta and getting married. I remember during that process thinking that you know, I'm doing all this prayer and I'm you know really wanting this to happen. I feel like I'm ticking all the right boxes and you know inshallah I'll be blessed. But then I'd look around at all my friends and I'd be like, man, this guy's got three kids, this guy's got two kids, this guy's got whatever. And I'm thinking about my age. I'm like, man, I'm I'm falling behind. Like, fair enough, I'm going to do prayer and everything else, but I'm falling behind. Like, pe- my, my friends are having multiple children by this point. Like, how can that ever be made up for? And then, like, um, you know, my wife and I'm the, you know, she, we got she got pregnant, and uh, we went for some scans. And I just remember they were, you know, doing the scan, and I, I've, I've come kind of from a medical type of background, so I saw what looked like obviously a, a, a fetus, and I was like, okay, that's good. And then there was something else next to it. I was like, what on earth is that? And I literally asked the person, they were like, oh, you're having twins. And I was like, oh my God. So I was taken aback. My wife was in complete shock. I don't think she said a word for the first like 10 minutes afterwards. But um, I just remember then thinking back to, you know, in my head before actually getting married, I was like, oh man, I'm falling behind. And then Alhamdulillah, I've been blessed with twins. And it's like, you know, I caught up some years <laughs> on my friends and everything else, but like I Alhamdulillah. It's the race. Yeah, <laughs> for me, it's always a race. But yeah, no, I remember, I think that for me was definitely the, the, the peak of this year. Um, and in terms of pits, I think um, now with so many more responsibilities on me than in the past, like previously, the only thing I need to really concern myself with is myself spiritually and what I need to be doing. But now when you have responsibilities in life <coughs> to your wife, to multiple kids, um, I'm finding that having so much of my time already spoken for means that I'm not able to dedicate as much time uh, to religion and religious improvement as I have been in the past. And that's been a really difficult adjustment for me. Um, so, you know, you asked me at the start, you know, wh- why you know, start to, you know, coming for Voice of Islam and stuff? Because I, I feel like this may be one of the means through which I can start to... Um, get that connection and put that drive and effort towards getting better spiritually. That's an interesting one. So you best be available every week. If you're not, if next time you say you're not available, we need to snip it. He's but what he just said. <laughs> just keep sending it to him. <laughs> Remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I just want to pick up on the last thing that Sajul mentioned there. There are some people that say that obviously, so people, uh, the relationship with God is obviously it's a very personal one, right? Mm. So some people argue that like it's a personal journey. I'm just focusing on my relationship with God. Yeah. So why is it important then that people do get involved in activities, organizational community uh, work or religious work? How does that help build a relationship with God? Why is it important? That I remember. Um, <coughs> I remember listening to something the fourth caliph mentioned when he visited Australia, mm. and he said that if you, if you. If you're enslaved to God, then you live this life free, yeah, a free man. If you're enslaved to the world and materialism, then you're a prisoner of this world. And I feel like with that point, the reason I'm saying this is because it depends on what perspective you look at things. So, for example, the same perspective of having children, for us, has been a blessing. For others, they might look at it as, yeah, what's happened? My whole life is ruined now. 
Yeah, mm. it's the same thing we've all said. That's a blessing for us, but mm. for others, they might not look at it from that point of view. Mm. So, in context of being involved in community events, or how is an event make me more spiritual? Well, actually, it's not the actually doing of one particular thing. It's understanding that this act is a form of service, and service is a form is a blessing really, because all of these acts that we do in life, like it's not our religion is not like a switch it doesn't just turn on when we come to the mosque okay now I'm going to be religious from now and when I go home that's it turn it back off and the next time I go back to the mosque I'll be religious again in every walk of life every field in our life we are Muslim mm-hmm. um, and a Muslim is a way of life so it's living a certain lifestyle with certain rules that we learn from the Quran the example set by the perfect teacher in the Holy Prophet may peace be on him and that's what we do and I feel it's like Sometimes, when it comes to spiritual exercises, we always look at some... Unless it's not important, it won't matter. When actually there's small things, like like we've all said in our homes that we can do, uh, like waking up for prayers, making sure we pray on time, don't give preference to anything else, being honest, speaking the truth. But we do these things not just because we're good people, because actually we know that there's an accountability. Like this God who's always watching whether I feel I'm doing these actions in front of people or I'm by myself I'll still always be answerable for them that accountability and understanding then progression because in every field of life for example work no one's ever happy on minimum wage everyone wants to progress and they realise sometimes to progress I might have to go to another country I might have to take a risk but spiritually sometimes because it's because people don't give it priority and understanding that actually all progress will go through this kind of channel of spirituality we're just happy doing the bare minimum and we don't understand that a a key part of spiritual progression is sacrifice and every form let's say the pillars of islam each pillar has a form of sacrifice but as if we understand that sacrifice if we embrace it then you'll see actually wow this sacrifice god's given me so much more like for example we'll talk about financial sacrifice there are people in remote part of the world who understand this element of sacrifice and they give and then God gives it back to them <clears throat> tenfold and that's why it says in Quran, if you give I'll give back to you tenfold but in this country it's so hard to say to someone look this is what God says is done to you we don't sacrifice we take part and if we do sacrifice we sacrifice at our convenience and I feel that's what halts our spiritual progression mm. I'll give you an example there was this um there's a scheme called Vakfa Jadid within our <coughs> community, but it's basically funds that are used to contribute. In the beginning, it was to Africa and Asia, but now it's wider, just to help remote places in the world mm. have the basic needs and necessities for them to live. Um, so the person who was in charge of collecting the funds, he was going, this is in Liberia, he was going from to each household saying, just a reminder, the year's coming to an end. If you haven't contributed the financial, years the financial right, year yeah. for this particular scheme, and the woman at the time said, "Look, I really want to take part because I understand the blessings attached to it, <clears throat> but um, I have no money. I'm so shameful. Like I'm so sorry, I don't have no money." The her son saw how much it was affecting his his mum. That my mum is so eager to take part, and she keeps talking about blessings. He then came out. He said, "Look, my dad before he went to work, he gave me this two hundred and fifty dollars." But it was for my school admin fee. Um, this is all the money we got, so I'll just take this. 
at the time the guy was a bit hesitant and I listen this for your school fee he goes no no don't worry look at my mum like she has such faith that like she doesn't want to be deprived from this blessing I'm sure God will sort it out a few days later he met that same man he said do you remember when I gave you 250 pounds or dollars he goes yeah he goes when you left the next day a few of our relatives came and they knew I was going to school and it was a big thing for like our family so they gave me a gift of 2,500 dollars tenfold literally tenfold mm. and he goes I have no doubt that that's because of that blessing. Mm-hmm. So like there are so many examples like that um, where people who aren't, I wouldn't say distracted, well, not blessed, but I would say distracted because materialism is not a bad thing. Like there's always good in everything mm-hmm. depending on how you use it. It's when you misuse it, it just becomes harmful. Mm-hmm. But in places, parts of the world where they have real problems in terms of like, okay, uh, all this, we have no power we have to pick and choose when we turn the generator on uh, and when this two hours of what we're going to do with the lights, cooking, charging, whatever. That's a real problem compared to like, you know, someone said something mean to me online. Like, you know what I mean? It's, that's, that's obviously a problem, but it's compared to like someone who's not got any electricity, gas, that it's difficult. So it's a lot easier, I guess, to turn to God in a situation where you feel like there's nothing else. Yeah. So the real test for us here is like in the midst of everything, Everyone's going at 100 miles per hour. How do I put God first? Yes. And that, the point God first doesn't mean you become like some sort of extremist in any capacity. There's no place for extremism in Islam. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean the extremists in terms of like terrorist. I mean extremists in terms of like, okay, big part of our teaching is prayer. It doesn't mean that we live in the mosque now and we eat, sleep, drink prayer. Like you have to give everything its due right. But at the core of each action, you should have the element of I'm accountable and God's watching I have to pray I have to be honest and, and I feel that kind of I don't know even what the question was I just went on that <laughs> one. But, but I hope that helps people in this like society yeah. no I think I think it does answer it because basically my question was um, people have an idea that I'm just focusing on my relationship with God right? yeah. so they kind of not stop themselves from getting involved in activities or work that we can do as an organisation or as a community yeah. they like just saying uh, I'm just focusing on my relationship yeah. so my question was how does how does this work that we do complement our relationship with, with uh, I mean if you look at it from it's like I think you've answered yeah. it in saying that yeah but generally it's like if okay like someone who says that I feel like they're, n- they're not really educated in what God really wants mm-hmm. that's a very easy answer to say okay look I don't want to get involved I'm just focused on me and God mm-hmm. yeah but have you seen what God wants from you have you seen like for example um the commandment of prayer is the most repeated commandment in the Quran and it's done in plural form every time because actually the real uh, performance of that act to give it its right to kind of serve its right has to be done in congregation in the mosque it's not just you at home and you and God uh, um, and if you study the Quran actually half of what we're supposed to be doing is fulfilling the rights of God mm-hmm. which you do through worship the other half is fulfilling the rights of man which you do through service to man service to God's creation mm-hmm. so that's what this community allows you to do mm-hmm. there's so many different things it's like saying I just want to play football and leave me alone in my garden me and my boot that's it like if you're really passionate about football then you'd want to play with others and try to play at the highest level <clears throat> it's even like it's like you'll never play with rubbish players like you'll never commit to a group that's rubbish I've been like in groups I've been the worst player and I know that okay. I know that these have got another group yeah. in which they like that's that's. I was in once in a group called Ballers, yeah, 
<laughs> I was the only you non-bowler in it. I was, uh, and I was like, man, these lot, I, I never get invited. The one time I got invited, that's why I was going off topic, there was a game being organised and I thought, I hope I get a call up for this game. And then one of our friends, he called me up and I thought, yeah, that's how I got the call up. His name is Cam. I was like, Cam, what's going on, boy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, are you available tomorrow? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm available. You play football? He goes, yeah, yeah, there's a game. Can you come and ref? <laughs> I was like, what? Can I come and ref? No, like, what do you mean? I want to play. So I'm saying, the reason I'm giving this example is I'm saying generally in any field of life, like for example, football or any sport, mm. cricket, if you're passionate about that sport and you say, look, I just want to focus on this sport, it doesn't mean that you only play in your garden with yourself and the ball and the bat. You would want to kind of take your passion to the next level and that's by getting out there playing to, as much as you can with as many people as you can alright cool yeah I think you've answered that quite comprehensively thank you so much alright let's move on to the headlines um, I want to come to you Sidio first your story what have you got for us <coughs> you've got an interesting one yeah so <coughs> I was just um, I came across this on uh, BBC News uh, there's like a famous um rap artist from Puerto Rico who's got I'll mention his name and, and stuff just because I'm going to also quote, quote him so I think it's fair so his name's Daddy Yankee and like songs like Despacito and stuff like this in the past uh, he's released so this is someone who's been phenomenally successful in his area um, you know made a lot of money got all of the material things he could probably want at his disposal and recently uh, he's decided to give up music to devote his life to religion. And um, what he says is, um, just as a quotation here, living a successful life is not the same as living a life with purpose. For a long time, I tried to fill an emptiness that nobody could fill. So, you know, I just came across that and I thought it was really interesting that somebody who has, you know, what a lot of us deem as success in this world you know he's definitely accomplished that but a person of that magnitude who has all of these things is saying that I'm I feel emptiness through these through this uh, these privileges that I've got and you know to fill that it's going to be through religion now albeit obviously he's of Puerto Rican descent so Christianity um and you know uh you know he has some quotes about Jesus Christ and what he means to him but for me I just thought it was really interesting that you know people are you know starting to see the you know the light of religion and the importance of it and it's especially those people who do have all of the things which you know we would maybe deem as material success which are coming towards it you know um that's so true like a, a few years ago i think i read a story on how the number of ceos like you would think a ceo is someone who's top of the food chain and mm. you know blessed with money probably got everything you ever desired for but they're actually the most unhappy people um and they're going through so much kind of mental health issues that it's unbelievable. Like, so it's, I think that's a, such a powerful story in terms of um, money isn't everything. But I feel this is one of like the, maybe we can discuss it in your, your particular story that you're going to mention, but you know the power of social media. Yeah. One of the negative like uh, impacts of social media is that from a young age, like kids at the age of like 13, 12, 13 are just seeing money, 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 mm -hmm. money. Or people, for example, now it's even shorts like with these YouTube shorts and like TikTok or whatever you're only seeing videos of 10 seconds but in those 10 seconds someone's expressing how much wealth they got and how amazing their life is for yeah. that 10 seconds and that sticks with you because then you start thinking well this is what I want um, so that's so true man I feel to have a purpose in life to understand what that purpose is yeah. 
it's the biggest blessing. Um, because like I said, man, that when I heard that phrase that if you if you're enslaved to God, then you live this life a free man and you you're happy because you know your purpose. You're not enslaved about anything, you're just worried about pleasing God. But if you're enslaved to materialism, then you're a prisoner because there's so many things that you got a tick box in terms of okay, there's so much red tape and things you can say, can't do, all of these things. Well, that's such a powerful story, man. It is a powerful story, and one of the other reasons why I wanted, to, um, wanted you to mention it is because they're turning to religion. Okay, this particular individual is turning to religion, uh, but a lot of people, in light of what's been happening around the world, have been turning to religion yeah. because of yeah. they're seeing the, the, the strength and the fortitude and, and, and the forbearance that uh, Muslims are showing around the world. I saw so it online that a lot of people are ordering the Quran. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of atheists yeah, yeah. who just says they're, they're just in awe. This is what I'm saying. When you see the what's happening in Gaza at the moment and how kids are reacting. Yeah. <clears throat> like, obviously, there's... Even, okay, for an adult to react in this manner... Is out like unbelievable. Like if you if you don't know anything about religion, you see adults, someone who's child. For example, I saw this story. It really hit me. It was this mother who basically said, "I went through um, however many cycles of IVF. I can't remember, but she said I went through IVF to have this child. Oh, like she was holding. I think a, I saw that. She it was, was hundred. She had a hundred and fifty something injections. Some, yeah, that's child. it. She yeah. said I had like a hundred and fifty injections yeah, 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 of yeah. IVF. Yeah. To like have this child yeah. and that's it's taken one no, bullet or like whatever it is yeah. to kill this child like that is just heartbreaking yeah. like when you hear stuff like that and when you hear mothers who just are saying no, 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 let me just hold him let me just hold him and let me just take one last picture with my like dead child yeah. like stuff like that but the thing is what's amazing is their reaction yeah. and their strength and their st- how steadfast they are yeah. so that reaction and it's not just in adults and kids as well yeah. that reaction has um made a lot of people think oh, it must be something yeah. what's giving them this strength so it's making them actually pick but up it's, the Quran it's the specific reaction that the reaction that they're giving when they say husbunallah when nitma yeah, 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 God keep, is enough for us and which, the best uh, of translates as sufficient for us is Allah and he's the best of disposal of affairs mm. so when they're like in the middle of everything when mm. they're seeing body parts you know on the floor um in the middle of that, in the middle of parents holding the, their children, we're hearing this 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 verse from the Quran, and that is incredible. How it's inspiring yeah, people yeah, 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 to yeah. to turn to religion and pick up the Quran. So, um, yeah, even like I think we mentioned it um, maybe a few months ago, where actually it's not so uncommon that people that have got to a certain level of success in inverted commas of material wealth or worldly success, they do feel an empty an emptiness. And there is, no, there is a void that they feel, and a lot of people do turn uh, to mental health issues and drives, etc. So, whereas this particular individual, Sajil, that you mentioned has turned to God, I mean, I feel like they've found the gap that they need to fill, but they've filled it with Christianity. Which, uh, fair enough, they found God. Um, but I think it's like a step in the right direction, basically. So, um, yeah, thank for that. I'll mention my story briefly, and then I want to move on to Shams. Your story. Actually, no, before we go on to my one, Swan, you had a, a, a couple of news stories that you wanted to share. Yeah, I mean, I always look for um, good news stories. It's good. I, think, I feel like we need that. Especially oh, how well, bleak, ha- bleak so Shams made the world sound. <laughs> there's, there's a show, like, there's, this sh- you know, um, a lot of game shows have been, like, restarted. So it's one game cost. show that got restarted was Deal or No Deal. Mm. Oh. And there's a really story of this, um, story of this guy called... Uh, Mr. Whale, who wanted to use the money to travel 
and pass it on to his family. But I think that his story is that he has, I don't know how to pronounce this, but you're a medical expert, you tell us, motor, is it? motor neuron disease, yeah. MND, yeah? So he's he's got that, and uh, his appeal was that the jack, the most money you can win is 100,000, uh-huh. and the least you could go away is 1p. So it's like a game show that they do that. So he ended up walking away with five pound. Uh-huh. But obviously when he introduced his whole, like, this is my story, when that happened, then online they started like a a fundraiser for him. Uh-huh. And now that fundraiser has raised more than 100,000. So it's helped this one guy. Yeah, And I thought that's quite that a really nice story. That like, you know, nice. like, obviously the guy, because I actually watched half of that episode. I didn't watch all of it. Yeah. But um, you're right. When you watch it, you do have like you really rooting for him. That like, I yeah. hope it goes well. Yeah. And then when I saw the headline the next day, this guy walked away with five pound. Yeah. I felt so bad for him. But for like, for the fact that people always, that's the thing. I think people always have in their heart mm, to compassion. do to compassion. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone's striving or something, they want let's help him. So yeah. that's definitely a good human trait. That is, so that's a good add on to that. Just to add on to that, there was something that came out recently where <clears throat> there was a plumber in the UK. I don't know if any of you caught wind of this. There was a plumber in the UK who was called out to um, an old person's home. Mm. The old person uh, was at, at, had stage four cancer, and then they wrote on their receipt uh, on the invoice, "No charge, person's uh, uh, terminally ill, has cancer, uh, so I'm not charging anything." And then that went around social media, and then this individual they're saying, "Oh, he's so passionate, so kind." Then people are raising funds for or giving money. Uh, to this individual, this plumber, because they felt that you know he didn't need to do that. He still could have charged mm. the family of the individual mm. who had cancer. So yeah, like there's still compassion and kindness in people. So, mm. however dire or you know bleak the world might seem, there is still compassion and kindness in the world. Um, so I'm going to quickly mention my story, which I think kind of leads on to Shams's. Well, I'm going to call it segment. <laughs> Um, so the story that I had was of this whole Rwanda disaster. I don't know if any of you are aware of this whole Rwanda issue that we've been having. Anyone know? Yeah. So the Rwanda issue is basically in 2022, um, I think it was under Boris Johnson still at the time, or Liz Trust, I can't remember. We've been through so many prime ministers in the last <laughs> three years. I can't remember who it was. But they said, they mentioned that actually with this whole issue of immigration and illegal immigration, not even legal immigration illegal immigration they feel that they should be deported and of all countries to be deported to they said rwanda now this was a massive issue from the beginning where there was a whole uproar of like rwanda of all countries that there would be so many states that you can send them to even our own british overseas territories that we have i think we have about 13 or 14 overseas territories that britain occupy or have ownership of they could be transferred there but that's that's not an option the option has always been only rwanda now, incredibly, I want to ask around the table, do you not know how much money has been spent on this whole plan without a single flight going to Rwanda with illegal immigrants or asylum seekers? Do you know how, does anyone know the figure? No. Is it over like 300 million? <clears throat> it's roughly 300 million dollars. Oh, wow. 300 million, so about 240 pound, I think is what I saw. 240 million pound has been spent on this plan without a single flight being taken off with illegal with, um, immigrants. So this right now is in such an issue. It went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, no, this isn't legal. So they kind of wrote it off and said, no, when they don't accept this plan to deport um, migrants to Rwanda. There's a lot of issues with Rwanda itself. They have um, 
they've been there's been conflict with Cong- Congo because Congo has the, uh, a part of land that is rich in minerals and Rwanda uh, it seems like they want to sort of kind of take that piece of land um, so there's a lot of uh, conflict going on there and there's been reports of um, a lot of atrocities uh, war atrocities in that area <clears throat> so that's one of the reasons why the Supreme Court was saying that you're sending them to a country that's not safe and is involved in these atrocities even the US have said US are not friendly with Rwanda because of the atrocities that they have been carrying out so UK are a bit like what, what, what are we doing even some Tory members themselves are saying I don't agree with this and there could be better countries that we can deport um, them to. But still, Rishi Sunak is trying to fight um, for uh, people to be uh, deported to uh, Rwanda. And I think there's a vote on Tuesday on this uh, plan to be re- sort of reinstated or re-looked at. So that was something that, in- that I thought was quite interesting, that regardless of the Supreme Court saying it's illegal, Rishi Sunak and uh, Conservatives still want to fight for people to be flown out to um, Rwanda. I mean, there's a lot to be spoken about immigration, I think, because there's actually no legal or safe route of immigration. It just does not exist. If there was a legal or safe route for immigration, people would apply for visa. People that are coming here illegally on boats, that's not a safe route. And under international law, I think it's international law or European law, if someone comes here from a war-torn country, we have to provide them a safe haven. It's, It's a law. Um, so it's it's a it's a long, tricky and um, interesting situation that the government are ha- going to have to deal with. But because of this whole immigration thing, there's another issue um, regarding our work <coughs> output and who's taking up these labor labor jobs and uh, our productivity as as an economy. So with that, I want to go over to Shams, who yeah, so has some comments. <coughs> on. I think, um, yeah, the the issue of productivity is quite interesting. Um, with the autumn sort of budget, uh, you know, we were we were given sort of statistics about growth and the economy and that sort of stuff, um, and it, it it came apparent that actually the UK has one of the lowest sort of um, within the European countries, um, or uh, lower than what you would expect amongst the sort of sort of richer and powerful nations um, in terms of a sort of output. Um, and it was just interesting because um, I forget that the stats exactly now, but, you know, th- over the last 15 years, I think um, productivity has been at sort of 1.7 or 1.6%. And the 15 years before that, it was around 15%. Um, and, you know, that's a huge drop. And I think, you know, what, what would be interesting is to discuss as to why that's happening um what are the very i mean it's all interlinked right um a lot of it is interlinked with various sort of spheres of of the society we live in but one of the areas is obviously there's um low investment in research and development um so the uk actually spends less compared to germany south korea um and you know some of this lack of investment can actually limit development of new tech um which then can uh, or, or even processes which can then improve productivity. Um, one that really sort of um, caught my eye was poor management. Um, there's a 2018 report um, by a Productivity Institute found the UK has a higher proportion of low skilled managers than other European countries. Um, this obviously ultimately leads to um, lack of innovation, poor decision making. 
um, training, lack of management at sort of the high levels that you you then you then require. And and what we were having a conversation off air is that you kind of then link it to um, you know other areas of society, and, they, and and you see there's a sort of teachers' strike, there's sort of train strikes, and talking about train strikes, the the next point I was going to actually mention was there's also a low level of investment in infrastructure, and that is railways, power sources, um, and all of these things. But anyway, back to um, poor management and lower quality of management in this country. Um, and what I was saying was that it actually links to sort of the unrest that we see in certain uh, vocations, right? We see in sort of the education um, system at the moment is struggling. There's um, strikes. Um, teachers there's, are striking. Yeah, the there's time, teachers yeah. strike. There's there's the unrest with that. Um, and it was just, I think when I was talking to you about it, you kind of wanted to go more into sort of an individual level. Yeah. But the individual level is is essentially pushed by sort of this, these, these macro policies that you have, these policies sort of at a wider scale um, that essentially influence at an individual level, right? So I was talking about saying earlier on that even within, you know, health and social care, um, it's very difficult to find sort of high quality managers at that level. Um, and, you know, that could be due to the lack of education, lack of um, you know opportunities or lack of investment in education by those organizations lack of skill sets um, and that in turn is sort of lowering sort of the quality um, of staff that you do have um, so don't they don't they measure this productivity by like output per hour so yeah, it's like too, what at yeah. a, so at an individual level it's okay what are you getting out of the work you're doing per hour right so is that yeah. is that how it's yeah that that's one of the ways it is but again that then links into what I was saying that if there's lack of investment in sort of innovation mm. or um, sort of new tech um, that output for hours per hour is going to be lower because other countries like Germany are investing more heavily in tech mm -hmm. they will have better systems um, better processes in place and like one question actually so Sajil is interesting because Sajil works. Um, in research, or, or I think you've moved away from that a little bit now, but within sort of that sphere, um, maybe you can explain where you work. But I'm pretty sure you're, you will say that there's a lack of investment. There's a there's a lack of money, unless um, and we we're having this conversation the other day. Unless there's you you know the overall objective of somehow these things making money, you won't really get the investment and money coming into areas of research, right? Yeah, no, definitely. <clears throat> so my background's in uh, pharmacology. <coughs> so, oh my God. <coughs> I got my drink. Yeah, so my, my background's in pharmacology and I've done a, a, a research PhD. So what we tend to find is, especially since Brexit, there was lots of funds which would be available to academics to apply for, to get funding for certain positions, whether it be a PhD student, a postdoctoral student, but since things like Brexit, loads of these funds have now been cut off from, from the UK. So as a result, the research that would have been done in these academic institutes is now reducing. And what that means is, coming back to your things in terms of productivity of the nation and, and, and the country, that's definitely come down somewhat. And naturally what's happened is the shift has been more towards the industry. And, you know those industrial, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies which are based typically abroad and maybe have some, you know, offices in, that, in the UK, um, they're taking on uh, the majority of that work. 
Now, the potential issue with that is that, you know, if there's an academic institute conducting research, the motivation behind doing it is often to help man. They're applying to charities for funding, British Heart Foundation, Cancer Research, and that's where they're getting their funding from. When that shifts towards industry, you end up having people who, at the end of the day, they have a bottom line of making money. Um, so I would give you just an example. When, when I was working in industry, um, the whole company were cancer specialists. And at the time, I was really into cancer. I was like, man, I really want to research this. It's really interesting. This is one of the leading companies in the UK in cancer. So I joined there, and on the first day, they told me, oh, we're no longer studying cancer. We now moved into idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And I said, what on earth is that? I have no idea what that is. So they told me, look, it's this really niche disease which very few people suffer from, but we decided to go there. So which very few people suffer from? Very few. Okay, yeah. So I was sitting... As opposed to, sorry, cancer, which <laughs> is so widespread. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, so I was difference. sitting next to a um, someone, like, it was a smallish company, so next to me was someone who was quite high up in the company. I just asked him, honestly, look, what's happened? What, what What's the reason for this shift and this change? And he just said, look, the, the fact of the matter is, let's say with cancer, how many companies are researching cancer right now? And what's the chances that what we produce is going to make us money and it's going to be better than all of this competition? So what we're going to do is, rather than go towards cancer, we're going to shift to a disease where hardly any people suffer from it, but we're going to be one of the only people researching in it, and if we create a drug, we can charge whatever we want from it for There's it. There's no competition. Yeah, no competition and make all the money. So remember, we think about the pharmaceutical industry as trying to help, help <coughs> man, and there are clearly some diseases which should be tackled. Typically, academia, that's their focus, is try to help these large-scale things, whereas when all of that kind of... Uh, research and development shifts towards industry maybe the focus no longer is helping man but more so to generate money for that company so I think it kind of leads on to that Do you, Are you finding that? Because that obviously links in with the fact that our education system, there's not enough funding in it, you know, teachers aren't paid well, even doctors aren't really paid well at sort of the initial stages, so you're finding that majority of people are going into sort of private um, or even moving away from sort of the med taking their skill set and moving into finance a lot more yeah, definitely. To be honest, that was going to be uh, one of my points in the second uh, second part. But um, yeah, what I find is typically people who have a PhD, you have two options. One is you can stay within academia and do research. And the other one <clears throat> is to go more down the industrial route or join a business uh, you know, in, in the city. So I had many people from my PhD office who've decided to kind of follow that um, route into finance and whatever else and you know credit to them they're making very good money mm. quite soon after leaving and in comparison you have the other life where you can stay in academia you're not going to get paid that well you're not going to have enough money to do the research you really want to do so really where's the incentive so it's definitely been a shift um i feel within our industry um, in that regard can i ask do you think that is specific to the uk or is that worldwide is that in like developed countries that that is actually a common thing um I think that the funding strategy of different countries, there's variations. Yeah. In the US, the universities and uh, over there, they have a different kind of funding compared to the UK. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily wide scale in that, in that sense, but definitely within the UK, that, that, that's the situation. But, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, the most current research, up to date, most influential, most impactful nations, it is going to be the US and certain parts of Europe. And in those places, the shift is more so towards the, 
the, the industry uh, kind of places because they have the more, more money and you're going to be able to do more research there. So, yeah. I find that interesting how it's quite interlinked then. So, like, for example, in the UK, we're not focusing on, essentially, humanity and what the need is, and we're focusing on what where, where the money is. We are going to fall behind in comparison to other countries that do actually have the proper funding to um, put the work into what humanity requires. Um, and then I think that could lead on to what... Islam then suggests about how we use our finances and our money. Well, well you, you, you know, you can even link it back to what we said in the previous sort of discussion we were having that actually, fi- you know, you have to include peace and uh, His Holiness, the Fifth Caliph, the Muslim community has, has, has previously said this and I'll try and, try and bring up the speech but he's highlighted the link between economic um, stability or advancement and peace. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't be taken apart. And it just goes back to what I was saying that in the previous sort of section we were speaking about people who are fairly wealthy and come from sort of materially sort of successful backgrounds or, or have made it sort of materially as to say they're not happy. And and, that, and that's because it's not just about that. It's not just about making money and like you take it back to sort of a societal perspective. It's not just about investing in finance. It's about investing in areas which create peace and so these individuals yeah. who may have a lot of money it doesn't matter because they're not at peace and yeah. take that back to a societal level your peace is going to necessarily come from health and social care it's going to come from doctors it's going to come from research into sort of drugs that are going to help sort of alleviate pain um, it's yeah. going to come from teachers education department which is going to you know these are the areas which essentially don't just help the economy to thrive but essentially they they they, incul- they they integrate peace into the society right that's why it's so paramount that these areas do need investment and so yeah just 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 closing off i mean there's, there's a lot we can speak about here from sort of an economic perspective and i think is one that we should maybe touch upon at a later time but yeah the productivity gap is it, it is genuinely massively linked mm. uh, in into sort of all the um different sectors we we see in this in the country that we live in. You know, just before you close off, sorry, I, I just want to. I just remembered something that, you know, the, how this productivity per hour thing, yeah, and just an example of that. So I have to, as part <coughs> of my job, produce a number of reports, and I think I've mentioned this offline at another mm. thing that we had. I have to produce a number of reports, right? And we have a team now at my workplace that focus on automation mm. and integration. And then one guy, he came down to sit down with me just to see how I work and what I have to do for one of my reports. And I was showing him, yeah, I've got to do this, X, Y, Z, pull all of these different sheets together to um, create this one report. So after like a, a good couple hours, hour and a half, two hours, it might have been showing everything I do. He goes to me, oh, yeah, I could do this and create this report in like a click of a button. <laughs> yeah. So are you serious? He goes, yeah, like it might take a little while to set up the whole set process, down, but I have to produce this report once a month. And it takes me time. So in that sense, yeah. I completely understand that like, if you put the investment in, yeah. your productivity would be a lot higher because it will save me so much time. Yeah, 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 exactly. That That is one of the key areas that there's not enough in yeah. investment into sort of tech and sort of even automation, you know. Yeah. But yeah, just... just, just no, but do you feel then... Uh, yeah, I mean, when I said we'll go to a break or we'll come very yeah. close to the hour, but yeah. do you feel from someone who's on that journey of life where that's now time for them to make a decision to where what field they go into either they follow their passion or they realise actually there's so much now artificial intelligence in this particular field I might as well now just make money and then when it's about making money you just what productivity would you get if you've got no foundation 
Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's an interesting one. I, I have a few thoughts on that. I think, let's um, let's, let's, go, let's go to the break. I think when we come back, let's definitely continue the session. But uh, please do join us after the news segment. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God be upon you. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. The time right now is 11.05. Just before the break, we were talking about a number of things, but we had finished off the hour talking about productivity, the economy, um, and issues that we have in our economic development and growth. Um, and I think, Osman, you so, finished yeah, the off quest- your the question. The question I wanted to ask Shams, because we t- spoke about um, investment into tech, and I just wanted to ask, because of the advancement of technology and how that can probably help a company in terms of because I've invested in it, maybe I don't require now a particular type of man force. I can save that income that I'm going to pay and invest in tech. Would that not put off people from getting into that industry? And and if so, if someone's in that industry, let's say I've I've got the foundation to work in that particular industry. Now I've realised that my job's been taken by this machine or whatever like system you got in place, and I have to look for another field. So naturally, my foundation is not. I don't have the expertise to go into whatever I'm going to naturally my production will be yeah, a lot less um, uh, by the way I just want to put out I'm no expert, expert. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's too late you're an expert <laughs> <laughs> but um, I hope that doesn't reflect on the, the level of intellect in this studio <laughs> but uh, well, I've been forced to become the expert but um, no um, I don't think we're there yet I don't think we're there yet in our AI and automation development um, in industries I don't think we're th- quite there where it's taking over jobs at that scale mm-hmm. I think if anything as Mo, Mo's example was you know he, someone helped him develop something which made his work quicker it should actually help um, it should actually make things better um, for now anyway um, you know I, I was in the financial industry for sort of over 10 years and we were always trying to find methods and ways and solutions as with research and development they probably are as well to make things better quicker you know stronger results um, and I think that helps um, if, if as opposed to a fear of you know that can if if in this moment an AI can sort of take away that job then yeah it's probably time to sort of upskill and learn something that AI isn't quite um, taking over yet but I mm. think at the moment AI is assisting in these things um, especially in sort of the I would say I don't know it might be different in, in other areas but at the moment it's, 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 if anything it's assisting yeah. and helping the productivity um, I think the lack of productivity does come from um, the lack of investment in probably some of these areas in probably lack of investment in, in, in AI in technology uh, in our sort of financial uh, infrastructure in our uh, workforce infrastructure so if anything I would say it's the other way around but when I first heard your question what I thought you said was because there's not enough investment in and so this is another question now because there's not enough investment in some of these sectors like research and development like education teaching Mm. is it putting people off Um, and at that point do you then choose between finance how much you can earn Mm. or go for something that you're passionate about and the reality is is that actually to survive in this country with thing you know with the crisis that we're going through now most people will probably pick finance unfortunately yeah. and that's having a bigger effect right because those people who are genuinely passionate 
about teaching, genuinely passionate about working with, I'm talking about the education sector itself for now, when I was in school, you know, I remember the teachers were super passionate, but, you know, and, and they really loved what they're doing. Now, I can't imagine those guys not doing that, leaving that and going to do something because it pays them more money. Like, that's such a shame for a society and that's such a sort of negative thing for our youth to experience. And I think that then has a link um, with where our youth are going, which is sort of where we're going to go into our next sort of segment. Because do we have the correct role models in the correct jobs? Because are we forcing role models out of who genuinely have that zeal and passion within them to do something? Are we forcing them out of those jobs because it means that they can't actually survive in those positions? So someone who's really, you know, by nature, a very compassionate person, really likes taking care of people, but he knows he's just not going to survive and he can't take care of his own family if he goes through that um, industry. So are we now losing people in industries which are, where it's vital for people to bring on a certain personality for the betterment of society, for the betterment of students, children, us growing up in these societies? Are we losing them because of the lack of investment? So it's all linked. You know, All of this productivity, lack of investment, the budgets, this is why econ- like economic policy is massively linked to sort of human geography and you know how society runs as a whole well, that's extremely interesting issue. that's really interesting. Very interesting and you know there's something else that i was thinking about um you know so your question where if something is if ai is developed and it's taken someone out of a job then this person's not got a job anymore has that now lowered production as well and then it comes back to one of the reasons why uh, productivity is low is because of a lack of skill right and so someone else's skill who's now developed this ai has now basically replace someone else's skill that he thought he had now what i thought from that is that basically the requirement or the skill requirement is forever evolving so what is a skill today in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years might not be a skill that's required it could Mm. be something else that's something that's completely different so the skills needed could also be constantly changing which could then also cause this issue of oh our productivity is low because this that skill that we had or needed 10-15 years ago is no longer a skill and there's people with that skill not producing the output that we need then yeah it could be a constant so, issue but unless so, so do you think that there's you know we're talking about how the UK in comparison to these other countries are becoming less productive do you think that those other countries they have better foresight for the future in terms of what skills will be necessary and the UK are lagging behind in that regard? I'm not sure about the foresight. I feel like they might just have a better balance of different things. So where someone's job or someone's work is being replaced potentially by AI, they might have something else in place to support this person or they might have other options available for this person or this person might have support elsewhere to get them into a different workforce that might allow better output I'm not sure exactly foresight could be one of the things Um, and it's potentially true if we think about what we mentioned earlier in terms of investments and where they're placed and how for example UK in your specific field with pharmacy it's not focused on individuals it's focused on money if in another country the focus is on actually the individuals what's better for them then if that is a foresight of this that's what they're focusing on that okay we're going to be producing work or we're producing technology that's taking people out of work so what think what can what can we then put them into then yeah like foresight would be something that we're lacking potentially if that makes sense the report cracking just the cracking the productivity code 
the, uh, an international comparison of UK productivity, which was published by the LSE's Programme on Innovation and Diffusion, showed that productivity slowed down um, and it began sort of after the global financial crisis. Yeah. But the UK suffered larger slowdown than any other, than other nations. Um, it analyzes that United States produces 28% more value added per hour than in the UK. The French and Germans are 13 and 14% more productive than the British counterparts. Now, that's a lot, right? So the primary reason that, that is given, especially here, uh, through, these, uh, through the analysis that's done, is that it's all to do with the investment, the capital investment. Um, but I'm just thinking, like, you've, you know, uh, and, 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 and there's certain policies that do come out which allow sort of, uh, you know, the, the businesses to invest more um, and, and they get some sort of, you know, benefits from sort of their tax um, and whatever it is. But I can't help but feel it's primar- primarily for me, the biggest investment is in people. Yeah. Like, I think that's where we're failing yeah. uh, hugely, massively. Mm. Um, and I keep taking it back to this because I, I, I think it comes down to our education system. Mm. I think that's where we're, we're really failing um, our children. I think that, you know, I think that's the core of your sort of future. Do so you like mean in the quality of education or the type of education? I would say... Both, I think. I think type has probably come about now more as we become more sort of innovative. Uh, you, you know, innovation sort of comes in, so you understand that there's other areas of education which we need to excel in. Like one of them being, I'm sure you guys went school in and around similar times to me, um, though I might be slightly older. Um, where we weren't really taught about finance, where you where you taught how to use a credit card, where you taught how to make savings, where you taught how to invest. No, and um, I think so. Where you say the type of education, yeah, there's certain things that need to now come into education. But I just think, in general, I think the quality of education, um, the the number of sort of people re- reaching the higher levels of education, and then going on to get, you know, jobs within those specified fields. And I think uh, again, to bring um, Islam back into it, you know, they, I can't remember where it was now, but there was, um, you know, a speech where it was explained that. Actually, part of the reason we would, we would, the, the discussion, I think, at the time was around sort of Islamic sort of extremism and people going down that side. And mm. one of the solutions was um, that what people are studying, they don't actually have any hope of getting into a job with those qualifications. They can't study, they can't work in sort of the area they've studied in. And so it's, an, it's a responsibility of the government to create or make sure that those jobs are there for these kids to feel like they have hope in this society, right? And th- again, that links back to what we're talking about, that there isn't enough investment for there to be um, those type of jobs where children can actually come out of education and think, you know what, I can now get a job, but with that job, I can actually afford to buy a house. That's another issue. So you now have a job. Inflation hasn't gone up, has, is not in the same rate as the amount your salaries increase. So now you can earn, but you actually can't buy a house. So your living standards are pouring. So this then links into sort of the mental sort of psyche of a person, right? You're working super hard. Uh, you've studied all these years, but yet you still feel, and I have spoken to friends about this who, you know, come from very good uh, backgrounds in terms of their families have done well. They've lived a good life. They've gone on to higher education, but they have, you know, categorically told me there's been periods of their lives 
where they have felt so unhappy and so like a failure really because they may have studied x amount of years but then they go into a job and their job can't they they can't their job doesn't allow them to even buy a half decent place for them and their kids and then that starts playing on the mental side of society right where you start feeling like a failure that then in turn can move people into more of an extre- yeah it can move people into more of an extremist mindset because because of the austerity and they're sort of unhappy with their lives in general stuff like that. so it's, it's a huge link yeah it's interesting because i talked to a lot of students who have gone through education and have got their undergraduate degrees and are now master students and the common question i get after a lecture is they'll come to me and be like look i don't know what i'm doing with my career i've applied to x amount of jobs haven't even received a response mm. there's hardly any positions out there i'm wanting to do a job which is in research to try to you know help humanity help mankind but I simply can't find anything. They ask me, you know, what should I do? And, you know, the harsh reality is either you stick at it and are willing to not be kind of financially rewarded and and keep applying for these things and maybe get something which is low paying, or you could just jump ship and start earning, you know, money elsewhere because there's loads of opportunities in the more financial areas than there are in this area. And I think I find that conversation hard to have because I'm basically breaking these students innocence in a way where they have this hope of i want to save the world you know the reason why i paid x amount of money for this master's course or this degree is because i want to do good and you know there's many international students who want to go back to their country and have an impact but the fact is there just isn't the opportunities there for them and these are people who have got the education and even they're having that that realization so i'm not sure really what the solution will be if there can be a shift in the uk in terms of shifting towards focusing on improving the overall productivity but I think things are progressively getting worse and we are lagging behind those other countries it's difficult man I always thought that especially when you talk about youngsters or the youth of today is that they lack a well, not all of them just general observation is that when you're when money is like constantly thrown in your face and money is equals to success and now there's this kind of mentality of fast access to money. Like that element of working hard is almost, it's not shown. Like when you see these like TikToks and shorts, no one shows you that the sacrifice that someone's made. The hustle behind The it, hustle man. behind his work and efforts, uh, his success, sorry. You just see the end product. Mm. And I feel that then slowly, slowly, slowly builds. And that one particular person, the impact it has on him is that He's so inconsistent in what he wants to do mm-hmm. because he just actually what he really wants is just money quick. Mm-hmm. I feel that even like it, for example, in Islamic values, why we don't gamble mm-hmm. is because there's no concept of hard work in that at all, and you're risking everything on the basis of uh, chance. Yeah. So it's I feel that's one quality as well. I don't know because for example, like if we all talk about our fathers, grandfathers, and if you hear their stories, like they, one common thing I'm sure we all experience is that they had to sacrifice, they had to work hard. Um, every, every, like one common thing is everyone's parent at some point walked a number of miles carrying a <laughs> certain amount of weight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have so much difficulty, but yeah, you're but right. But that's what it is now. Right, yeah. And I think we'll, the only difference I can see, for example, the example you just gave, it's like where, this is where people of faith would say, Okay, it's mind. The first thing we hear, learn from the sayings of the Prophet, may peace be on him, is that your actions are judged by their intentions. Mm-hmm. So if your intentions are pure, work hard, 
but then match your work with prayers. Like I'll give you an example. Like so, this is a real example that happened to me a few months ago. This guy was struggling for a job, um, and he were, he lives in one of the local chapters that I cover as a missionary. He's struggling for a job. He said to me that I pray that I get a job in this particular field. Like I've done education in this particular field, but I can't seem to get a job. And at the moment, it's I'm at that point now where any job will do because I need to pay bills and help out at home. I said, okay, hopefully, God willing, you'll be all right. He got this job at a local retail shop. And his one condition was, he goes, yeah, uh, I'll take any job, but my only condition is I can't work on Fridays because that's our special kind of prayer day. And if I, if you do require me to work, then uh, my lunch break needs to be a bit extended because I need to go and pray. Apart from that, I'll do whatever you want. They rejected him. So when he came to me, he goes, they rejected me, but this is the first time I didn't feel bad because I gave precedence to a particular part of my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes, what happened was, when I said no to that, I got an even better job offer. But again, it wasn't in the field that I wanted. Said the same dialogue happened again. The guy said, look, I can't give you Friday off. He goes, so I don't want it. I don't want the job. Then. This happened like continuously. Like, And the, thing, the way it worked was, as soon as he got rejected, another job offer came. And it was a better than the one previous. And this kept happening. Until then, a job offer for one of the highest firms in the industry that he works, like he's done his education, and reached out to him and said, look, we're interested in you coming on board. And he said the same thing. That one Friday, I said, yeah, no problem. Work from home on Fridays. You can go do what you want. So, like, for me, like, and for him, like, if you ask him his personal experiences, I was struggling to get a job in that industry, but I always gave precedence to my faith. Mm. Now, I'm not saying by all means just rely on that, but the foundation of our decisions is always that. You know what? It's, mm. I am going to give precedence to this because where I feel something's not working, either you, where do you find peace then? Either it's you start doing things that you're, are inappropriate and against, that aren't good for you either. Gamb- some people turn to gambling for money some people start taking loans some people start doing whatever they need um, but then where if you focus on prayer and continue your hard work then you have to have firm belief that actually it will work out you know there's the, the, such a sort of beautiful short story actually the, the fact of the matter is that Islam provides solutions to our everyday sort of lives and, and questions and difficulties. It's unfortunate that sometimes society is geared or designed in, 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 in a way which doesn't allow us to apply sometimes the Islamic principles in the same way. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that historically, you know, society worked in sort of the traditional family uh, and roles and responsibilities were sort of uh, laid out. And in Islam, you know, there are roles and responsibilities of um, breadwinner, you know, looking after children, the moral and sort of spiritual development of the children, the core responsibilities, bringing home sort of income. These are all laid out in Islam. Um, and I think that traditional family you don't necessarily see works anymore in this country. And one of the reasons is because the economic situation is that you need two people in the relationship to be working that then has a knock-on, potentially a knock-on effect on the, the the moral sort of development of a child. Added with the fact that our schooling systems are probably not as good and probably overburdened, added with the pressures of society. So, you know, Islam does, just going back to the point, that Islam does provide, you know, these solutions of how, how they should be. Um, 
you know, you may have heard the the phrase "keeping up with the Joneses," where which is what social media is now, right? You're always looking around, and you always want to keep up with what the person's got. If they've got a new car, that's what you want. If they've got a new house or a bigger house, that's what you want. But actually, Islam says materially, look at those who are below you, not those mm-hmm. who are above you, and that way you can have that contentment. But spiritually, look at those who are above you, yeah. right? Um, and try and follow sort of their example. So. I think it's quite it's quite because we're going into it now, right? Yeah, it's Which a good is, segue, yeah. um, you know, how our youth are probably growing up with this challenge of, you know, we've all lived here, um, we probably all have lived. I wouldn't say like a, a double life, but there's been two clear uh, ways of life to us. One, maybe in our households and and the way our parents are and the way religion is meant to be, and two, going into school and seeing how you know the other side lives. So there has been that challenge, like. I think all of us can probably give examples of how it has been difficult and sometimes you do feel like do I even fit in anywhere like you know am I am I a Muslim at home am I not a Muslim outside because in school or do I need to f- will I fit in and so these are challenges that I think growing up in a society like this which most sort of labeled as seemingly immoral and it's true mm-hmm. um, immorality is sort of uh, at an increase how do you navigate sort of um, ar- around that? And that's why I mentioned yeah. the sort of roles and responsibilities yeah. that Islam places because it does give us the, the solutions, but can we always implement it? And I think one way to implement it, which is always going to be an issue or a battle or a challenge or like a test, is to try and focus on having um, God or Islam or your principles at the forefront. So it was going to come back to your story that you mentioned where this individual... Possibly he was fresh out of university or uh, education, um, so I'm not too sure how old he was, but I'm, uh, I'm going to assume early 20s uh, or mid-20s. And for him, it's amazing that he actually had that. He had that, mm. you know, okay, I need to try and focus on my prayers. But that's not, that's not so, it's not common. Not common. Um, and then h- how do we implement that? Because I'll, I'll say openly, like, when I finished uni, when I was looking for work, I didn't think, okay, I need to have Friday off. I need to think of a way how am I going to be able to mm. pray on a Friday with whatever job I'm going to be offered or whichever job I'm looking for. But then how do we sort of inculcate this priority in the children in light of everything that children are facing nowadays? How do we inculcate that? It's difficult because, look, I remember growing up, one of the things that, if I reflect on my childhood and my relationship with my parents, one of the things that come to mind straight away is the language barrier that I had, yeah? That my Urdu wasn't, like, my parents spoke Urdu. That was the f- my first language as well, but my Urdu wasn't the best, and their English wasn't the best. So, it, and my common thought process was always that they won't understand they're from Pakistan. So that was always, like, in my mind, like, okay, I can't really share anything with them. They won't know what I'm going through. Of course, I love them, respect them, have an element of fear of, of them as well. You don't want to disappoint them but I just can't open up to them. So, But there were certain things that my parents always put into process. Um, for example, uh, prayer. Like every time I come home, go. the first thing you do is go pray. Uh, we're going to pray in the evenings. There were certain rules that my parents put in place that I didn't understand then, but now, like now I'm a parent, I thought, wow, that's such a good rule. Like if I get to do that, I want to do that. for example, nowadays, obviously the, your phone is like a computer, but we used to have a computer before even laptops, there's a computer at home. The house rule was that it has to be in the living room. I never understood that rule then. 
I said, well, I can't have it in my bedroom. No, no, it has to be in the living room. Do what you want. Spend as much time as you want, but it has to be in the living room. You're too active on MSN. MSN, <laughs> yeah. Probably, as soon as you come home, that's like MSN. The meanest but moment. Now I understand like that. That's <laughs> such a, like, uh, yeah, because actually it's a huge struggle because you're now, like, when you're coming home, the reason you want to shut your door more times than not is because you want to do things that you know your parents want to approve. Mm. But now it's in the living room because at that time, when you're a child, the accountability of God is always watching is not as much and religion is something you've inherited. So if you've questioned, yeah, the moment you question it mm. and you believe in it wholeheartedly and you start practicing it, that's when like your life changes. Mm. But up until then, I feel like the practices, whether we understand it or not, still serve as a reminder that actually we're people who live a certain way and each thing has wisdom behind it if we understand. So then what you're saying basically is then for children today or for the youth of today, um, it's down to the parents then. It's down yeah. to the parents to have the practices I'd, in place yeah. to then eventually, even if the children don't understand it at the time, yeah. eventually when they're older, they all look back and I'll give you an okay. example, yeah. So you mentioned parents' roles and responsibilities of a father and a mother, yeah? You're absolutely right. Islam promotes that the father is the breadwinner and the mother, she's kind of the home uh, carer. She looks after the home, but more importantly, the upbringing of the children. Now, it's what you prioritize, to be honest. You're right, in this country, to pay for a mortgage, sometimes you need two incomes. Absolutely. But what do you value? Because when you grow, when your children are growing up, would you rather, are you more concerned that they're um, financially in a good position? Or are you more concerned that actually I want this person just to have righteousness at its core if it's financially then your f religious practices take a backseat yeah and again it's just a switch you turn it on and off when it's convenient for you if it's religion then you'd always put in that child's heart that it, there are ups and downs but this particular action of ours will never change that's why i always remember the caliph his holiness once mentioned that what will make you a true believer is when you have children because you understand then that there'll be a time in this child's life because you've seen them from infancy there'll be a time in this child's life where you can no longer protect them you have to let the leash go you they'll go into the world and you're just praying that god please protect this child so it's it depends what you prioritize now like i said like still that doesn't mean that these are the roles and responsibilities islam's put in place in an ideal situation so in a situation where you require the wife requires to work and I feel even then I feel like that's this uh, perception of women working of course it's allowed but I feel like that's a whole media narrative as well in terms of to push the agenda that men and women are equal if you ask most women they probably would but I mean if you ask most men if we had the option I would love to stay at home <laughs> and just to, like even now like my routine is like morning prayers at what 6.45 after that I'm gone like I'm, work day started for me and uh, work day finishes for me if there's no other meetings after the evening prayer which is at 8 o'clock so then I will only really get to see my child in a small window so if I had a chance and I of course I would love I, and that, that's regardless of your gender it's human nature to always want what's easier but the connection that a mother has with a child is so much deeper than a father has with a child. 
um, and that's why the status of a mother is unreal in Islam so what I'm saying is it's like if you're required to work by all means work but then what do you prioritize in your child's life that's the question you have to ask and be realistic because as long as you have if it's righteousness then it's always instilling in your child that it's not about like finding a career where I'm going to strive and get loads of money it's about okay I'm going to earn to provide uh, but these are still our core principles that we we do not fold we will never prior, we'll never kind of um, mould our religion to cater for our work or for our finances it won't mean that because I'm really struggling for example you can't do a bad action with a good intention so uh, the first thing I said today or before I spoke was that actions are judged by their intentions I can't do a bad action with a good intention meaning that if I want to make sure that my family's financially set I can't decide to rob a bank but my intention is that I want to give to the poor and provide for my family and help the whole world that doesn't work because you've committed a sin so within Islam there's principles of what's a sin and what's not we can't commit a sin thinking that okay yeah but it's for a good cause so it's always about the instilling the uh, qualities of hard work uh, prayer and understanding having faith that all will be okay and this is not something that's just on the average person if you study the life of the prophets in every century there were prophets of over a hundred thousand prophets have come in history all of them have one thing in common that they've gone through extreme struggle but they've gone through it because they have certainty that there's a God and they've experienced God and God's kind of commissioned them to do certain things so it's the same thing if you have faith it's the same thing that when we look at these people of uh, Gaza Palestine who are dying and their families being killed why do they have that resolve it's because they have firm faith that there's a God mm. so it's the same thing in our day to day lives so do you think that um, you mentioned these gods I think <coughs> and obviously they have their own issues in terms of like trying to stay alive basically and then we've got kids over here with other issues as well with like not trying to stay alive but actually with for example trying to fit in in school wanting, wanting to wear a Christmas jumper um, but then yeah it comes back to my question like, how do we balance that how do we make sure that in our child we are inculcating this priority of our principle first and uh, this God has to come first your religion has to come first how are we drawing the balance and then actually it comes down to your question then, uh, the, the one you s s set off right at the beginning what are we doing with our child in terms of like if they want to get involved in something that's um, Christmas related and even though seemingly it could be harmless what are we what are we prioritising and if we then say that look it's harmless it's nothing it's just them getting involved we don't want them to be feel left out it might have an issue on their mental well-being if they're so traumatized that you know i'm being bullied because i'm not wearing a christmas jumper what are you then prioritizing and how do you prioritize and what is what is what is best for the child yeah it's, it's a really difficult one i think every every family will probably have their own way and relationship and methods of, of i mean there's a broader understanding of what we should do but you know, every relationship is different, so every family will have their own way. For me, like for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. I've had this conversation at home many times about the celebration of birthdays, right? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe harmless um, in, in some ways, 
But the conversation that I always have with my wife, and not that she's, you know, die-hard birthday celebration, but, you know, even she's like sometimes, you know, like a small something, something small, something within the family, and I've, and I've always been against it. And the reason is, is because the way I explained it to her is, just think in 20 years' time, right? Every year, you and this is just from me, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, this is just the way I think. You know, this child, every year, is celebrating something that it's actually done nothing to achieve, right? Now, put that into a wider perspective, 20 years down the line, it's growing up, having birthdays every single year, he or she, and it now feels like it's... it's, it's, it's Owed something. Not owed something, but it's like put into it so strongly that yeah I, it's entitled to it's entitled yeah. to this and I and I and I just said to my wife like you have to link that into other areas of this child's life education like will it ever achieve something in education without working hard towards it no but then in one aspect from a psychological perspective you're allowing it to believe that it can yeah. and from another aspect from a psychological perspective you're telling it it's impossible so for me and maybe, maybe that's just way too deep to think of it but yeah. there's a lot more than that but I just think certain things that you steps you take in, in life that you may, you may feel are irrelevant you may feel like these are completely harmless but actually if you try and look at what that could do in 15, 20 years time and what type of feeling that could give it a perfect example I think it's the second Khalifa uh, wrote a book on um, how to sort of up, you know, the upbringing of a child, mm. and even went into the smallest of details as to don't let a child eat from your plate, you know, just don't let it wander around, run around, and pick up food from its plate because it has this entitlement feeling of yeah, you know, basically I can take yeah. what I want or something. And I think another one was don't be overly loving uh, publicly because again, that puts um, you know feelings into a child of. Um, intimate or intimacy or, or closeness in a way where it's not sort of worthy or it's not allowed or something like you know along these lines but essentially what it's like what, what I'm saying is that things which may seem very small may yeah. seem even though uh, you know I would I would like yeah. to s- yeah, sometimes yeah. celebrate something for my child I would like to mm, um, you know and I, and I speak to my staff about this and they're always so shocked because I don't celebrate my child's birthday but you know why wouldn't I like to enjoy a, a nice yeah. day for me it was you know the happiest day of my life that my child was born but why do I stop it I stop it because I think the negative outweighs the positive yeah. and that's why I stop it so not he, because there's no positive here's one thing uh, so for example this birthday thing is quite a common thing one thing I really like my brother-in-law does with his daughter so my niece so he basically on her birthday would say okay let's go shopping and get a bunch of gifts and sit and go to the hospital or go to her elderly home mm-hmm. and explain to her that look God's given you a year in your another year uh, and that means you're now responsible to help others so on your birthday we're going to give others yeah. gifts so he, they always every year they'll go to like a hospice or elderly home and give gifts and at the end of the day like the family will get together to cut a cake do a prayer That's nice, yeah. I really like that and I was like this is actually really good practice because essentially you're celebrating it but just in a different form mm. and I think Positive this is the thing yeah so this is the thing with celebration like in this society celebrating means uh, not caring about anything around you just enjoying the moment and partying you know for for that temporary uh, however long you're celebrating forgetting about all your tensions and worries and what's happening or responsibilities and just go all out and that's not the case for us for us celebrating means actually acknowledging that whatever we've achieved is due to the grace of God so we're going to congregate 
in prayer. That's our form of celebrating. Secondly, I think um, it's important to, as parents, you know, sometimes our, like every parent you'll see, you say like, I'm going to make sure my child doesn't go through the struggles that I go through. Mm. And you know, that is dangerous as well. It's because it's like that same point of being entitled or actually you're depriving your child from going through this process which will build their character. And then every generation now, like if every generation thinks in that way, each generation will lose passion for actually... This is why I feel with sports, like one thing I've seen, because I work with a lot of youth, this generation is just not interested in sports in the same way that we were interested. Like I'm still, I'm 33, I still would love to play as much as I can. I would love to get involved in like competitive sports. But you see some children, like youth who are like 20 to 25, super talented, just, just don't care. Like they've got no, they're not willing to go the extra mile to do anything. So it's, um, I feel like that as well, like to understand as a parent, and I think this is what I've learned from the prayer. You know, when someone passes away or we go for any difficulty, we say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun, which means surely we belong to God and to Him we will return. That is such a reminder, puts everything in perspective for me, that I'm not praying this so that this particular person comes back to life. When I've lost something, I'm not praying that I have to find it because I've prayed this thing. But I'm actually saying this thing to remind myself and acknowledge that, yeah, the most important thing at the end of the day is that we're going to return to God. Mm. We will belong to Him. So when I have a child, I can't be scared of them going through difficulty. Um, They have to go through that process. For them to understand, because look, it's only in difficulty that you turn to prayer. Like if you, if I honestly are, if we were to evaluate ourselves, when's the most spiritual we felt? It's when we've gone through a difficulty, mm-hmm. because we then understand that we got to turn to God. Mm-hmm. So if I'm taking that aspect out of my child's life, that yeah, yeah you don't ha- ever have to struggle, you have easy. no struggles, then their biggest struggle will be this: that they don't have a purpose. They feel like, what, what am I doing? Like, money's not an issue. I don't have to work yeah. hard. I don't have to do anything. So I think that. For, from a parent point of view and that's got nothing to do with the kid that's not the kid's fault if the parents want to provide for them from our point of view I think you're right we have to put things in perspective that you're not entitled to anything you have to work hard you have to go through struggles I will always be here a shoulder to lean on and give you advice and if need be obviously money but you can't I'll give you an example of this actually in one birthday, of the they're not even getting food now <laughs> <laughs> go cook <laughs> no but there was this example of this uh, I knew this one guy in one of the one of my again chapters I used to work in he was struggling to work find work and he also had this entitlement feeling towards his parents that you've got so much property this and that give me like what's mine and his parents <coughs> knew that we're not going to give it to you because the sad reality was he started spending it on alcohol, gambling. Mm. So his parents knew that there was no point in giving this guy anything. This guy's going to waste it. So he wants, um, uh, what's the term when you call someone drunk? Drunk draw? He was inebriated. No, when you, call, when you call someone when you're drunk. D- drunk draw? I don't know what the exact term is, but he was drunk and he called me. Obviously, as Muslims, we don't drink. And uh, my first thought was, because I remember reading the founder of Islam, uh, founder of Ahmadiyyat, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, of God the Arm, may peace be on him, who we believe to be the second coming of Jesus, he mentioned that if I found out that one of my members was drunk in town, I'd go pick up and pick him up and look after him and make sure that he's okay. So then I 
went and did the same thing. I thought, okay, let me fo- I'm a follower. Let me pick him up, try to put as much water and coffee in him. And I said to him that, and he was unrecognizable. Like that's when I realized. I mean, generally alcohol throughout my youth, you see like when your friends are doing it, the effects it has on them. But this is the first time I saw it in adulthood. This guy's got four children, young children. And now look at him, he's unrecognizable. Like the, this alcohol has just changed him totally. Anyway, I picked him up and I said to him, listen, um, I'm gonna pick you up tomorrow morning for prayer. If you're drunk, that's your fault. I'm still gonna take you. And that's gonna be your embarrassment that you have to show people that you you drink. So whatever happens, I'll see you tomorrow at whatever. I think prayer was early those days, it was about four o'clock. So I said, I'll see you, see you at half three. So I did that for about two weeks. I'd pick him up in the morning, pick him up in the evening. And he wasn't drinking for that period. He's, in his mind, he's like, yeah, I'm changing. But then the week I was away from that particular area, he called me again, drunk. Anyway, so we, a lot of people tried a lot of things for him. He even went to like rehab in a different country. Like the, His level of drinking was to an extreme where he, they put a part of this, this one process of rehab where they inject you with this fluid and it's always in your body. And that makes you, uh, re- what's the word? Like revolt. You're, you you just can't stand alcohol, like the okay. smell of it. It makes you sick. That that particular liquid, I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but they put it in you and it makes you repent mm-hmm. or kind of always deny alcohol because the smell of it will just make you sick. He was so like, his cravings were so dead that he just cut himself and took it out. <laughs> like that's how bad it was. Like he went rehab for a certain amount of months. They put it in him, he thought he recovered cravings again got bad this whole life started catching up with him in terms of I need money I need money he took it out then what happened was I mean we kept trying we kept trying to help him family tried everyone tried what changed this guy's life was he basically started fasting he said you know what let me just fast because I know when I fast in the month of Ramadan I'm the best version of me so he goes, I did one day, two day, one week passed, I didn't drink. One month passed now, he goes, I was continuously fasting without any days off. One month turned into two, two turned into three. He goes, for five months now, I fasted every day. And he goes, I never once had the urge of drinking. And he goes, in those five months, and then that fasting, practice of fasting enabled me to enhance my other spiritual exercises, like praying actually on time, making sure I pray five times a day. Because when you're doing, so for example, when we fast, if you, if you were to starve yourself and then they are told you actually none of this was worth it, you then know that, okay, actually for this act to be worth it, I have to actually now pray as well. Mm. Otherwise, I'm just starving myself. Mm. So that, that element kept kicking in. So after five months, it was now Ramadan. So he goes, okay, for Ramadan, I'll take a week off. Took a week off and then started the month of Ramadan. So six months now passed. He didn't drink. And that act kept him sober. And it was clean. So I'm just saying it's like the practices that you have firm faith in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you balance it right with your your prayers, then inshallah, like, di- we, there's no um, pill or practice I can tell you that if you do this, all your struggles will finish. No, you will go through struggles. We need to go through struggles because struggles actually define who we are. Mm. That's a make or break moment in your life. But if you rely on the right things, that's why the advice you get good is that's why Islam says company of the righteous is so important. Because the advice you get is so important. You could be struggling and you ask me, I'm gonna say to you, let's work hard, let's pray, let me help you. You might ask someone else, you might say, Listen, mate, I know you're struggling. You sell this stuff for me for a week, this product, you get fast money, your problems will disappear. 
and then slowly that continues and then you're used to now that lifestyle of actually I'll oh, just do something that's illegal at least I was paying the bills mm. and now I can drive a nice car and I can live in like you know I don't have to pay tax on this as well it's all cash in hand like all of these things start going into your mind so it's about not wanting an easy life yeah. understanding the values of working hard not being scared of going through struggles and difficulties and understanding even from a parent point of view that like I can't bubble wrap my child I have to understand that I have to let them make mistakes they might make mistakes but the fact that I'm there for them will hopefully help them yeah um, I was going to say coming off that that really interesting points is that um, you know being exposed to those tests and trials are going to make someone you know they're going to improve as a person so the way that I always saw it was that there's only so much obviously you can do for for your child but exposing them without being too harsh is, is a good thing um, uh, so I remember when I was growing up my mum would make a clear distinction that you have to be different from all the people around you you are I mean without special not in a way where you know but you're special you're an individual so when you see all these things around you you can't hold yourself to those standards mm. so coming all the way back to what Shams was saying earlier in terms of this instance where his, you know um, everyone's wearing Christmas jumpers my mum, anyway, would see that as an opportunity to embed in this kid that, look, you're different, what the standards you're held to are going to be different, and now let's use this as an opportunity to make you realise why you have to behave and act differently. So I think as a parent, you're right, things are going to happen, but what you can do is instil those core principles in a person so that come the time that there is hardship, that their back is up against the wall, that the then right they're going to come and make the right choices mm. and decisions. And... Yeah, it was just interesting hearing you say that because I think you also said that you don't realise the th things that your parents are doing when you're young. You don't realise, like, why are they telling me to, to do this and what TV, like, you know, be on the computer in the living room. So my mum used to do stuff. I was like, what the hell, man? Like, just <laughs> let me enjoy myself. Let me do this thing. But she would make a point of it of, you know, if we're walking on onto the underground and there was a woman carrying a bag up the stairs she slapped me on the back of the head if I'm not going to you know help that person mm. and he's thinking like, well, come on man what, what are you doing <laughs> but those kinds of little things they kind of embed seeds in you so that when I am faced with difficulty or hardship at the very least I know these are my core principles and these I won't compromise on mm. and now let me see what I can do to help in, in addition mm. to that yeah absolutely it's um it's one of those things like you know you only when you go through it you understand for example like when my daughter was born, obviously when a child is born, we say the first thing we do is make the call to prayer in their ear. Now, like, you can just do that as a tick box exercise, but if you understand what you're doing, you're basically, the first thing this child's going to hear as it's born is the call to prayer, yeah? So you're kind of showing through your actions, and I think it's as much, it's as important for the parent mm. as it is for the kid, because the kid, not gonna, like, none of us remember that happening to us, mm -hmm. yeah? But it did. So, it's a huge reminder to the parents as well that actually what this action of doing the call to the prayer as soon as this child is born is a prayer that God protects this child and this child always puts God first but also for me and a reminder that this is a blessing and prayer is the biggest protection like I used to someone used to ask, someone asked me as well that what do you feel the biggest problem is that our youth is facing and I always used to think that it was girls relationships or it could be um, uh, drugs or alcohol, like what's it called? This type of substance, misuse of this type of substance. 
And then His Holiness once said to me, actually, no, it's prayer. And I was like, no, no, it's the, sol- the solution is prayer. I said, no, no, the problem is prayer. And it's, I, it just changed the way I looked at things because up until then, I always <coughs> used to think, yeah, the solution is that you pray. Like if you're involved in bad things, pray, you'll be fine. I never looked at it from that point of view. That actually, the problem is you're not praying. And because you're not praying, prayer serves as a shield. That's what it says. It serves as a shield and it protects you from all these vices. We don't live our lives covering our eyes that, oh, I don't want to see anything that I'm not allowed to do. We live in a society where people have the free will to do whatever they want, think how they want. They could be called whatever they want now as well. So we have to live through that. But we have to live through that, like Sajil said, that, you know, understanding what our values are. And we're not going to compromise our values. So the one thing, the one action that can save us, and if we don't do it, it's the biggest problem, is that we're not praying. Mm. Prayer serves as a shield. And I remember the best example the Holy Prophet gave, may peace be on him, when someone was asking, what's the wisdom behind five prayers a day? And he said, look, if I was to tell you, if you were to shower five times, or bath five times a day, at the end of the day, would you be dirty or clean? So of course you'll be clean because you've looked after your physical health five times, you've washed. Because yeah, this is a spiritual shower. If you spiritually cleanse yourself five times a day, there's no way at the end of the day that you'll spiritually be stained. And that's such a beautiful thing. And if you understand the wisdom behind it, but then that the next question is like for us, and I say this because we're born and raised as Muslims in a Muslim household, that if we don't understand, like as we mature, the wisdom behind what we're doing, why we're doing it, then this, like we're no different to parrots. Like you can teach a parrot how to say something and it will continuously say it. So if I'm now just doing it without understanding, without connecting to it, then that prayer, then then my kind of force field, like if you use prayer as a force field, is very weak. It could be shattered very easily. I think that's actually one reason why, <clears throat> um, you know, we know that um, losing God or losing religion is something that's really common nowadays. Um, and I feel like there's this like spiritual sort of war between God and no God. And actually where people have been in such a repetition for so long and been in practices for so long which they haven't understood they're falling away from them because they haven't understood the practices they haven't understood their beliefs hence they're like this doesn't really make sense to me which is why atheism or not believing in a, in, in a creator or not even being sure which is what agnostics are which is, I had a conversation recently with someone like no, I'm not really too sure is it comes it comes down to that and I try to I try to explain like you know by my own methods in, as, as best as possible but um, yeah I think uh, when you truly do understand your principles and your beliefs and like why you do what you do why you pray and um, why you have these uh, you know th- this this way of life and how it is so interlinked with literally everything literally yeah. everything and mm-hmm. I think I mentioned in one of our previous shows how even the five pillars, pillars of Islam okay it's five pillars of a of of a of a theology of a of a belief of a religious belief. However, every single pillar of Islam is so interlinked in a physical societal way that is no there's no escaping how you behave, regardless of like whether you believe in God or not. It's it's so interlinked. So um, mm. you, you know, know sorry, one, sorry, thing one, one thing I just want to mention on that one is you're right, like our faith is not based on theory. Mm-hmm. Like there's theories about everything. Yeah. Like if you were to uh, speak to someone who's just got a theory that God doesn't exist, he might convince you. Yeah. But then someone can convince you with the theory that God does exist. Yeah. Our faith is not based on theory, it's based on practice and the fact that we believe in a living God. Secondly, these 
pillars of Islam. Each pillar gives you a life lesson as well. I'll give an example, yeah? So, for example, you're, you manage your own business, yeah? I'm sure you would be appreciative of someone who's honest and not scared to speak up of what the truth is. That is such a quality. That's what the first pillar exactly is all about, to testify that there's one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. Now, the reason I say that is because that's not an easy thing to do. It's easy for us because we're born into that. Mm. For someone who's found the truth and belongs to another faith, for him to testify that, it takes courage. It's a huge sacrifice. To believe it is one thing, but then to announce it is a whole different sacrifice. Mm. So if you have the courage to do that, then one thing that instills you in you that I will always have the courage to speak the truth. And as people who are like in charge of looking for employees, that's one great quality. Mm-hmm. So like each pillar has so many qualities and life lessons that you can take out of it. But it's only if you connect it and think about it. Because the reality is, this, this is what I'm saying, that where you in a household, the priority is money. Then these things just become textbook things. The Islam has five pillars, one, two, three, four, five. Just go and pray, that's it. But where it's like, no, no, like I've experienced it. Like I've just explained the first pillar from a different point of view. That look, it instills courage in you because you've got to stand up and say, look, there's one God. And that quality of courage you need in every field of life. Mm. If you're a captain on a sports team, if you're uh, working as an employee, you could be the lowest level employee, but never be scared to speak the truth. Mm. Stand up even if it's against whoever it is. So like, it depends on what angle you look at it from. Mm. What can you about to mention? Yeah, no, I, I, was, I mean, there's not much time left, but I think it would be an interesting to, maybe we can do it in the following shows, just to go into some of the challenges as well. Just one quick thing that I'll, uh, I'll, I'll quickly mention is our fourth caliph once was asked a question about why we don't eat pork. Uh, I'll very quickly sort of mention it. Mm. And, um, you know, someone gave the example of because it's it's a dirty animal, it's this, it's that. And His Holiness actually said, you know, those are all correct. But as science develops and things develop, there, there will always be other reasons and other animals will come up and there will people give you examples of what about this animal, what about that animal. Is that the best example, the best answer to this question? is that it's a commandment from God. And I think that's how we should carry our faith as well. Not try and justify it to others because when you're in societal settings, everyone will say to you, but why do you need God for this? And then, but, but why do you need belief for this? But actually I can make money this way. That's all true. But ultimately we believe in God. And if God has commanded something, we follow that categorically. Yeah. I think that's what we should try yeah. and also instill in, into our children rather than try and sometimes sugarcoat it and give them explanations. But the truth is we do celebrate X and this is why we do, or we don't, and this is why we don't, and just sometimes just being clear-cut, you know, as Sajil said, having those core values. But, you know, thank you for joining us uh, once again uh, on Saturday Morning Live, and we look forward to being with you again next week.